uh, as in Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the woman, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. It's the word of the Lord Jesus. Thank you. of Jesus Christ. We've just had read to us a passage whereby the followers of Jesus stumble upon this reality for the very first time. The women arrive to find an empty tomb and we're told that seeing the stone rolled away and unable to find the body of Jesus, they stood there wondering about what had happened. They have a supernatural experience in which they're told that Jesus is alive. And they, bewildered, run back to the disciples to tell them what they've heard. The disciples do not believe the women. We're told their words seem to them like nonsense, as of course it would do to us. <coughs> and yet, Peter sees enough, understands enough of the ramifications to immediately realize this event is worth engaging with. This claim is worth investigating, and so he runs to the tomb to explore for himself. And this evening, I'd love to invite us into that exploration. I want us to stand, metaphorically, if you will, at the empty tomb again, and to ask our own questions. The academic consensus on the historicity of the resurrection has taken a significant change of direction in the past generation. Developments and discoveries in related fields have led scholars across the spectrum, skeptical and none, of all faiths and none, to agree on 12 facts as agreed facts of history. And I'd like to take just four of these facts and to consider their implications. Firstly, the fact that Jesus died on the cross. 
The suggestion that Jesus did not actually die, but rather soon and later revived in the call of the tomb, has been completely discredited in modern times. The more we've understood about the flogging procedures of the Romans and their methods of crucifixion, the more convinced the academy that the swoon theory is not plausible. Moreover, it's recorded that a spear was put in Jesus' side and that blood and water gushed out. Modern medicine confirms what they would not have known in recording that particular fact, that that is indicative, that separation indicative of death. New Testament scholar Michael Conan states, This fact is as solid as anything in ancient history. Jesus was crucified and died as a result. The scholarly consensus is absolutely overwhelming. To deny it would be to take a marginal position that would get you laughed out of the academic world. Jesus died on a cross. Secondly, the tomb was empty. Jesus' death was the culmination of pressure on both the Roman elites and the Jewish leaders of the time to discredit the claims of Christ and put a swift end to the movement that was growing around him. The claim of the disciples that Jesus was resurrected and that the tomb was empty was not a spiritual, conceptual, an emotional claim. It was and is an audaciously embodied claim that in a certain place and at a certain time, Jesus Christ was bodily resurrected. I want to suggest to you that this ought not to have been a difficult claim to disprove, particularly given that the claim was made within six weeks of the crucifixion, publicly made, and in the very region where the crucifixion occurred. And that history records that the Jewish leaders paid off the Roman guards to say that the disciples had stolen the body. Regardless of whether that was true or not, it presupposes at least two things. Firstly, that the tomb was in fact empty and that neither the Jews nor the Romans had the body. As to the disciples stealing the body of Jesus, we would have to believe that a frightened, beleaguered group of men and women in the midst of the grief of having watched their friend and leader crucified on a cross and with no prior expectation or imagination even that an individual would be physically raised in such a way would have concocted the idea overpowered a 16-man guard, moved the stone away, stole the body, and then transformed to such courage and boldness that they were willing to die for the lie. And to what end? Academic historians have not found this theory plausible. Jesus died on the cross, and three days later that tomb was empty. Thirdly, the followers of Jesus immediately and unanimously came to believe that Jesus had bodily raised from the dead. This was not their starting assumption. They arrive at the tomb and the historical record tells us they are perplexed, bewildered, unsure. They are silent around, wondering what has happened. Contrary to popular misperceptions today, they are not expecting an individual physical resurrection. The Jewish belief at the time was of a general resurrection and at the end of time. Alistair McGrath, professor of science and religion at the University of Oxford, puts it like this. 
far from merely fitting into the popular expectation of the pattern of resurrection, what happened to Jesus actually contradicted it. The sheer novelty of the Christian position at the time has been obscured by 2,000 years' experience of the Christian understanding of the resurrection. Yet at the time, it was wild, unorthodox, and radical. It's been suggested that this radical shift came about as a later mythical legendary development, but this is grossly out of keeping with the scholarly consensus that says that within one to five years, there existed already in creedal form amongst the early church the assertion that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he was raised to life. A new understanding of a physical resurrection was born overnight. Fourthly and finally, Jesus' followers were convinced that they had met the risen Jesus on several occasions. Half a generation ago, it was popular to suggest that the disciples, in their grief and in their longing, hallucinated these meetings. Aside from being an explanation that doesn't speak to the enduring puzzle of the empty tomb, this is a theory that's been discredited by the findings and the evidence of modern psychology. Group hallucinations simply do not occur. They are by nature subjective personal experiences. And in any case, it was not just the followers of Jesus in their grief and in their longing who said they had met the risen Lord Jesus, but those who had once been skeptical and those who had once been enemies. James, the brother of Jesus, who in Jesus' lifetime thought him mad, came to lead the Jerusalem church and to give his life for his belief in the resurrection. Paul, the persecutor of the church, who came to prominence because of his zeal at stamping out the new Christian movement, also converted because he was convinced he had met the risen Jesus and also paid with his life. In fact, over 500 people made similar claims. It is said that liars make poor marches. People may die for something that is false, but they don't die for something that they know to be false. Twelve facts. Time doesn't permit us to look at all of them. But I have found it interesting that even amongst skeptical academics, the attention in the academy has moved away from trying to argue that the resurrection did not happen to the idea that the historical question is probably unanswerable. For want of a convincing naturalistic explanation, 2,000 years of inquiry on from the facts. It seems that we're willing to say that no naturalistic explanations are plausible, and yet unwilling to say that the resurrection might be. Things like this don't happen after all. Dead people stay dead. This is a fact of which we're all aware. They don't just come back to life. Naturally speaking, of course we're right. But that was never the claim. Professor Wolfhard Panninger writes this, if somebody considers it to be a general rule, suffering no exception, 
that the dead remain dead, then of course one cannot accept the Christian assertion that Jesus was raised. But then this is not a historical judgment, but an ideological belief. Is it possible? Is it possible? Is it possible that Jesus Christ really was who he claimed to be, God in the flesh? Is it possible that when Jesus predicted his own death and three days later his resurrection, that we were meant to take that claim seriously, that this was the sign of who he claimed to be? Is it possible that Jesus really was raised from the dead? A while ago, some friends of mine moved to the States, and I went back to my office after they'd left to find a little note with a smiley face on it and a mug with the words, Tanya, so what, Walker? Let's just say that this is a question I've asked myself maybe one or two times in the past. So what? What's the meaning of all of this? Was the resurrection some kind of magic trick or some random anomaly? What is its significance for us. A couple of years ago, my daughter Georgia was just turning three. And as I was putting her to bed one night, tickles and kisses and cuddles, she wouldn't let me go. She held on tight to me. And eventually I said to her, Georgia, just a couple more minutes. And as she held on tight to me and with her little voice, she said, Mommy, I want all of the minutes. It was a line that held greater significance for me than she could have possibly known. Just a few months previously to that, some dear friends of ours had lost their son. And in the grief that followed that, I remember thinking to myself, not just the loss of days and weeks and months and years. If you've ever deeply loved, you'll know what I mean when I talk about the preciousness of every minute. And as I held my little girl, I found myself voicing what I've come to conclude is one of the deepest longings of every human heart. Georgia, I said, I want all the minutes to. We don't talk very often about hope anymore in our present culture. Of course we have our fair share of the inspirational, the motivational, the strong in the way that we engage with the world and with our own lives. Of course we have those who feel confident for a better future, confident that a difference can be made, activists, (coughs) optimists. But hope, true hope, hope amidst the grit of the suffering and the brokenness. Hope that gives content and meaning to life and lives beyond the grave. A hope that answers the cry for all of the minutes. A hope that takes the death of loved ones and the experience of the loss and puts over the word temporary. A hope that sees the injustice, the dysfunctions, the corruption, and acknowledges that something has gone horribly wrong with our world, but that one day, all of this will be set right again. This is a hope that only lives in the context of the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
We have thought of ourselves as realists when we've made our uneasy, resigned peace with death. We have thought that we were forfeiting hope for truth. But Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, appeals to us. We are not realists. We are living in a lesser reality, a smaller reality, a reality with us in the centre and made in our image, with hopes that are narrow, reduced, plastered with pastel colours, toothless. We're living in the shadowlands. And we are being invited into the true reality, the greater reality, a better hope. Jesus Christ said to his disciples, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even after dying. Do you believe him? Do you believe in him? And notice the distinction. We're not being asked simply for an intellectual assent to doctrine. When you believe in someone, it's the affirmation of a lived relationship where somebody has proved worthy. All of the suffering, all of the brokenness, death itself came into the world because we disconnected ourselves from the God who sustains all life. And on the cross and through the resurrection, God himself took on the penalty of our evil, overcame the power of that evil in which we were trapped, overcame the disconnect and in so doing defeated death. And now we're being asked, Do you want to look at the cross? Do you want to know the power of the resurrection to humbly, gratefully accept the cost that was paid on our behalf and to put our faith in Jesus Christ and going forward to live, to truly live with him? Let me end with the words of a poem called Kerygma by Haley Schmidt. Behold, children of man, hope shines in your broken sky as a gilded star. Hope burning in death's very shadow, raised on the third day, forever dancing. Taste and see that love is your origin. Taste and see it, love your destiny. Taste and see it, friendship, friendship with God. If you would but dare to join the joyful throng, their exquisite rest alive like fire is for you. Come and know the truth is, for death has sung its swan song. In Jesus Christ, there is no grave at all. This Easter, as over two billion people around the world celebrate these amazing, profound truths in their own lives, may you know the joy, the comfort, the awe, the greater reality of the remarkable words inspired by the words that were told to the women at the empty tomb. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.
maybe much like the women at the tomb, you did not come today expecting to leave with a belief in the resurrection. But I'm struck by the more than 500 people who just days after that event and by the more than 2 billion people in the world today whose story is that they encountered the risen Lord and that this changed everything. Followers, skeptics, enemies of God alike. That invitation to encounter remains today. And I want to extend that invitation to you. And after I leave just a few minutes of silence, I'm going to pray for us. And if you would like to respond, perhaps you could just echo the intention of that prayer in your heart and give it your amen. Jesus Christ, God who died and rose again. Thank you that on the cross, you paid the penalty for our evils and overcame their power. Thank you that you bore our suffering and carried our sorrows. Thank you that you won for us life. And today, I pray on behalf of all who would like to encounter you afresh, come into our hearts. Make yourself known. Make yourself at home. Be the Lord not only of the whole earth, but also of us. And give us the thrill and the joy of living with you, Saviour and friend. Amen.